Greetings and salutations. You are listening to the Into the North podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CEDH. I am one of your hosts, Lyndon, aka Noobzors, and today I'm joined by my hosts, my co-hosts, Matt, aka Null. Yo. Reed, aka Sick Robot. How you doing? And Morgan, aka Spleenface. What's up, everyone? And in this episode, uh, we're going to be covering the skill floor and skill ceiling of decks and, and uh, you know, talking about and, and um, kind of defining those and, and, you know, seeing what interesting discussion ensues. Um, but before we do that, uh, what have you guys been up to since the last episode? Which I believe was our year in review episode that we did live on Twitch. So, I mean, I guess a, the majority of our listeners... Um, would have seen either a VOD or, or listened to the uh, just the audio for that. Um, that is generous, because also we didn't put out an audio version. <laughs> oh, wait, we didn't put out an audio no. version? I mean, there, there's a VOD on YouTube, but I don't... Yeah, yeah we don't. It's on YouTube. Oh. Yeah. It's audio if you're not looking at it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I thought we had... Whoops, my bad. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess... Uh, I guess for our audio-only listeners... Um, yeah, go check out the VOD on YouTube if you want an extra episode. Yeah, <laughs> finding out now that you 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 have a, a bonus episode you can listen to. So uh, yeah, that, that was that was a, a lot of fun. Um, we went over our. Did we wait? Hold on, have we not done audio versions for our previous year in reviews? No. Oh wow. Yeah, I don't think Why so. Don't they, don't have, uh, they don't have. Episode well, I mean, the first either. the first one was like actually just an episode. Yeah. Oh, Wait, what, a, what was we, our second only done, one? We've only done last year didn't streams. have an episode number. What? Aren't we third anniversary? I, I think we've only done right, three. Right, but our first one was like when we were, it was like our fourth episode or something. Oh, maybe. It was literally year in review. Uh, I don't know. What anyway. We at the end of 20. <laughs> uh, looks like our, oh, it looks like our first two were actually just regular episodes. And then we did the next two live. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, yeah. go go check that out. We covered um, a lot of stuff um, about the year. We also did you know some predictions for the uh, upcoming year, and you know we did some. We reviewed because I guess if you're an audio only listener, we in our previous year in reviews we'd always do predictions, and so we'd reviewed our our predictions from previous years, see how we did. So you know lots of lots of cool stuff. Um, interacted with some listeners in chat. So yeah, it was really cool. And you know next time we do it. Check out, come up, be on our, our Discord, and, uh, you know, we, we post announcements um, of this sort of thing there. So, uh, yeah, be sure you won't, you won't miss the next one by uh, joining the Discord. But, yeah, um, so since then, uh, have you guys been up to anything interesting? I've just been, like, waking up at, like, 8 o'clock consistently and drinking a lot more coffee. I don't know what changed. That's <laughs> incredibly strange. <laughs> <laughs> I thought just, that was just, going in like just, a different direction, dude. I was you're like, I've just been waking oh. up in the middle of the night and screaming. <laughs> Cold sweat. Uh, uh. Well, you know, you know, uh, I know what Morgan and myself have been doing quite a bit, and that's uh, Vintage Cube. The Vintage Cube grind. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think eight trophies is my personal best. You've had eight. Yeah, dude. You've been you've been you have been grinding, oh. man. Did you guys see wow. the, uh, Damn. there was, like, the charity, like, head-to-head -head between, like, a bunch of streamers doing Vintage Cube? No, I didn't. Uh, no, it, I did it, not. It, no. Had, it had, like, LSV and people in it and uh, stuff. Anyway, um, 
it was like LSV Gabriel and the C, um, some other streamers. Anyway, I was I it's just because I watched Caleb D a fair amount killed your word, and he had a run where I think over the course of it, it was it was a trophy competition, so whichever team ended up with the most trophies at the end, um, won. At the end, I think he had a fifty percent trophy rate. Jesus. Yeah, That's o- over like wow. over like twenty drafts or something. It and was and, like and was he insane. was he drafting to trophy? Like was he? Because I'm uh, as someone who you know, like I feel like you could have a, a pretty oh, yeah. decent so, win rate if you're drafting mono red or mono white no, no, over no. and over so, again. But so I assume that he is drafting like, a bunch of different stuff. Right? It's it's he he is drafting to trophy, but he's not drafting like, like he's not forcing everything the exact same. Like he's not forcing like the same two decks every time. He's like <laughs> taking what's available to him and building like a different deck every single draft. It was actually nuts. That's impressive. Yeah, I feel That's like really I feel cool. like taking what's available actually leads to building the same deck every draft. But. <laughs> Uh, potentially, I don't know. Yeah, or I mean, like the same why, like white. Decks. White is open so yeah, often. There's, That's why there's it's, I view it as the best so deck in the cube. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess yeah, also. It's... Sorry. No, no, go for it. Uh, no, I, I, I was just gonna say like the the charity stream reminded me of. Uh, there was the, the I was on the uh, the Mystic Remoras had their twenty four hour charity stream, um, last week. Oh yeah, right. Forgot just about that. yeah. I, Probably should have put it in that, and then when you said charity stream, I was like, "Oh yeah, charity stream." <laughs> oh yeah, I did that. And oh, they raised—I cool. think they raised eight thousand dollars for yeah, um, actually like the Trevor ton. Project. That's oh, awesome. That's all. Yeah. Damn. It gave away three thousand dollars in in raffle prizes. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say they gave away three thousand dollars of the eight grand. <laughs> <laughs> I just pocketed <laughs> five grand. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, it's the for-profit charity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, you know, we could, we should do what the, um, yeah, we, we should start doing charity streams and then do what uh, you know, like grocery stores and stuff do. You know, just use use donations as tax write off. That's so bad. Ah, uh, yes, so fraud. Ah, uh, but not just that, charitable fraud. <laughs> <laughs> the best kind of fraud. If you're gonna fraud, I feel like ethics are already out the window. Oh, you just go all the way through the deep end. I like if you're gonna commit fraud, you might as well just go to the nearest orphanage and steal money right out of their hands. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> all right. It just feels more personal when you're doing it like yeah, exactly. that. You know? <laughs> Could have left it to the imagination of the listeners, but just had to go. <laughs> and oh, hey, it's the Christmas spirit, you know. You what? It wouldn't be Christmas without thinking of you know but Tiny Scrooge. Tim and Scrooge. Yeah. Oh, well. okay. Um, yeah. So I guess uh, any, anyone else been up to, to anything? Um, oh yeah, you know, just stealing money from orphans. <laughs> Cool, cool. <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. And without further ado, uh, let's uh, jump into housekeeping. Uh, so in housekeeping, we always like to shout out our new patrons. Um, so big shout outs to uh, Alex O. And Nicholas A. Yay. I'm gonna, you know, new year, yeah. I'm going to stop saying the thing, you know? Yeah. I'm going to stop cool. saying that's That's my, that's, I should have added that to our, our new year's resolution. In, in our year in review. I'm just gonna stop stealing from the command zone directly, so yeah, I'm not saying it anymore. I'm just gonna say, you know, thanks. You guys are awesome. You know So we'll steal from you. orphans, but we draw what? the line at the command zone. <laughs> <laughs> hey Morgan. Corporations yeah. are people. 
We're getting off to a spicy start today. Or, an, or, an orphan, an orphan doesn't have the the full might of Watsy to sew us into the ground. You know. <laughs> God. I feel um, like we should Elias next year. Crossed. Next year in review, we should add. Uh, we should add a resolution. Like obviously, CD. Oh yeah, no. but hundred percent true um okay yeah so yeah big but thank you to our, our patrons you guys uh you know as we say in the end of the show you guys help uh let us improve the quality of what we're doing and it's, it just it means a lot um yeah thank you guys uh okay and then new developments uh i guess you know morgan reed man sure you guys want to do this uh so we're soft announcing this early um but we're <laughs> i don't know Obviously, it's uh, we're talking about Marchesa 2022, which is happening uh, in Seattle at the end of March. I believe it's the weekend of the 26th, 27th. Um, some of us are hoping to go. Obviously, <laughs> yeah, pending uh, current situation. You know, there's there's some amount of uncertainty with international travel in the near future. Pending uh, for, the Decepticon for... virus or whatever the. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, um, the vid. We don't. We don't know. You know where the the thing that we can't say because you know YouTube doesn't like us to say it uh, will be. Regardless of the seasonal illness, exactly. It's looking like a pretty sweet tournament. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, and uh, we're stoked for sweet tournaments. Yeah. So uh, hopefully things aren't too crazy, and we can meet some of you guys and you know say hi from a from a respectfully safe social distance maybe jam some games sitting across the table you know uh don't, yeah. don't get it wrong though morgan wouldn't shake your hand even if there <laughs> anyway yeah. it's a convenient excuse <laughs> <laughs> you dare touch the greatest cedh player <laughs> and i'd say it like that too yeah yeah, yeah. Although he has a he has a little he has like a, a squire follow him around and say it it's it's truly something extra so you know it, it's almost worth going to the CDH events just to see it um, just to so see yeah, if you can no, get me to bully yeah honestly you. I was thinking of cosplaying as Morgan this year yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I don't, I think that would be um, the yeah, most so... boring cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Marchesa 2022. I mean, yeah, I just kind of... I got the bug. Okay, actually, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> you, you can't say that now, right? You can't You can't say I, I caught the bug for in-person tournaments right. when <laughs> you might catch a bug from going to in-person yeah, tournaments. Exactly. <laughs> like that's, uh, yeah, that's maybe, maybe not the best terminology to use. But no, going to yeah, Tier 1 Con just, like, reminded me how much I miss in-person events. So, like, you know, it would be awesome to be able to uh to go to seattle and stuff but yeah i guess it is definitely definitely pending on uh everything goes yeah, yeah. look forward to uh hearing more from us um you know we'll, we'll uh i guess keep posting updates or you know saying things and new developments um as weeks go by well we'll let you know if things you know fall through i guess but uh, if you want to get a more um t timely updates uh, you should go to join the um, a Monarch uh, Discord, Discord server. server. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll have a link for that in the description. Mm -hmm. uh, cool, cool. 
Okay, so uh, on to our main topic uh, for the episode, which is the skill floor and skill ceiling of decks. Um, so before we kind of you know get into that and and you know kind of break it down a bit, it's important to kind of understand what we're talking about because you know even pre-show uh, there was a bit of uh, confusion. We, we there was a bit of talking past each other when um, you know. In, in terms of getting an understanding of uh, skill floor and skill ceiling. So the skill floor of a deck is the minimum player skill required for a deck to be viable. Um, or it's the minimum result um, of a player with minimal skill. And so these are kind of, it's a two-part two thing. And so one thing we also have to understand is um, kind of what does it mean to be viable? Uh, in CDH and kind of the definition that I like to use um, and, and you can you're going to get different results when you, when you talk to different people but uh, the definition I like to use is in a pod of CDH that um, you know where the decks aren't you know it's not like a fixed pod or anything um, but that your deck would get a roughly 15% win rate and you know an example is like um, Goreclaw in mid power you know just stompy stompy Goreclaw you know, big, big fatties, it's, it's going to take some games of CDH. You know, if the pod is especially Staxy, you're going to, um, you know, you're, you're going to just beat people to death with uh, with fatties. Uh, and that, you know, might maybe, if you're just playing against a bunch of random uh, CDH pods, maybe, maybe you could even get like a 5% win rate. But we wouldn't really call that a CDH viable deck. Um, so where we kind of, you have to set the threshold uh, somewhere. And what I, I like to use is about 15%. Um, and that tends to encapsulate yeah, most of what good. we would understand uh, CDH decks to be. And then, so that's the minimum player skill required for a deck to be viable because, you know, you can pilot a deck extremely poorly um, and be below a 15% win rate. And it's going to require some amount of skill to at least bring it up to that level. So that's what we're gonna. That's that's part of the definition of floor. The second part is the minimum result of a player with minimum skill. So you know, if you're um, a player of of uh, minimum skill, but the deck is just so powerful that you know, even piling at that level, you're above that fifteen percent level. Um, that's you know also uh, the floor. Uh, so um, one thing I guess that's kind of important to the terminology of. Uh, floor and ceiling is that when we talk about a deck having a high skill floor versus a low skill floor um, we're referring to what is high is not the floor itself but it's the amount of skill required to reach the floor so if a, a deck with a low skill floor um, means that a non-skilled player can reach that minimum level of viability with it and a high skill floor means it requires a uh, high amount of skill to reach that minimum level of viability. And yeah, that common 15% floor. Yeah, exactly. And then, so when we talk about the uh, skill ceiling, uh, that is how far above the floor is the maximum performance of the deck. Uh, so, you know, this is, you know, if, if we, we talked about 15%, so let's say that the, the uh, floor of the deck was. Uh, 15% and that's even with the minimum skill player you know if you have a uh, a 20% win rate versus a 25% win rate the 20% case is a lower ceiling than the 25% case so what that really translates to is the amount that increasing your skill 
can increase your performance with the deck. Okay, and so uh, Matt actually has some really good uh, real-world analogies that we can use to kind of better understand this concept. Uh, I, and this one, you know, gives me a strong... I can strongly visualize this one. Um, so first, <laughs> a racing bike with training wheels uh, being kind of the low-floor, high-ceiling type construction, and then a unicycle with a small wheel being kind of the high-floor, low-ceiling construction. Yeah. Right? Because with the unicycle, you need a trained clown or whatever, or just someone with a lot of time to ride it, but you're not going to go very fast because there aren't, there's no gear system and the wheel is small. Uh, and a racing bike, you know, a, you know, a, an actual baby can't ride it, but as long as you're just tall enough, then uh, you can and you don't even have to balance. Yeah. But if you do put a very trained person on a racing bike, they will certainly win. Uh, you know, the Tour de France. <laughs> Maybe not so, with the training wheels on, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> training wheels might Eventually get in the, the way. Wheels how, much, hindrance. How, yeah. much, how much would you pay to watch, a, like, a race of all, like, hyper-pro cyclists racing with training wheels? <laughs> um, like, honestly, the racing bike itself is enough. I just wanted to add the training wheels on as an extra little. Oh, like, I fully yeah, appreciate the mental image. image. <laughs> And so to help uh, make this even more concrete for um, CDH and Magic more generally, we've got an example of a CDH deck that fits each of these different categories. So it would be uh, in our first, I guess, here, Morgan Reed, you, you can you can cover these these guys. Well, so, so we'll we'll sort of like lay out what. So like the combinations that we're looking at here are the combinations of like what the skill ceiling looks like on a deck and what the skill floor looks like on a deck. So. Like, the combinations being stuff like high floor, high skill ceiling, low skill floor, and low skill ceiling, and then the in-between uh, stuff. So we're just going to, like, walk through a few of these just to give you an idea of, like, sort of what the, like, deck representatives, uh, and not necessarily, like, strict representatives of these archetypes are, but just to give you an idea of what we're working with here. Um, so the first of these would be a deck that has a high skill floor, but also a high skill ceiling. So a deck that um, isn't particularly easy to just pick up and run with. Um, but once you do get going, there's a lot of uh, space to grow and express skill. Um, and the deck that we picked for this is uh, Razakats. Um, I think maybe at some point in the past... No, no, I, th I think Cats has pretty much always been a good... Um, representative for this because it's a deck that certainly isn't super easy to just pick up and run with um the combo line isn't super compact even with um like oracle in the deck you, you have to sort of learn what um like eyewitness lines are how to abuse like life death what you use led for um and sort of like all that stuff not even getting into game plan stuff but once you start picking up all of that and like know how the combo works, know when you're going for cats and and like basic game plans, there's still like a ton of space to work with and like mulligans, game plan decisions, what you're tutoring for at any given point in time, when you're tutoring, that kind of stuff. Uh, so the uh, example of a high floor, uh, low ceiling deck is Prime Speaker Vanifar. So there's a decent amount of complexity in uh, like understanding the lines and the pivots and like how you sort of need to like what you need to do to actually just execute the combo uh but once you have that there's like almost no like there are very few decision points in the deck where like you're 
you know, you have to decide, like, do I go for it this turn? You know, do I cast Vanifar this turn? Like, the answer to those questions is almost always just yes. And, uh, and, like, you, I don't know, it's just, it's just really is not, uh, <laughs> really is not that, that yeah. complicated once you get it's to just that like, level. Can I cast Vanifar? Yes, all right, we're casting Vanifar. Do I have Vanifar in play and it's not summoning sick? Well, if I'm not going for it now, what am I ever going for it? So. Yeah, the flowchart is long for how you play Vanifar, but it has, like, three branch points and that's it <laughs> yeah it's just like can i guess vanifar yes okay can i do the combo all right do these 30 steps in a row and don't mess up but you know there, there's not that sort of yeah. like because the the deck's combo package is so large um you can almost always go for a combo and there's very little room in the deck for like disruptive ele elements like the one concession to that is that there's, like, a collector oof. So, if you're like, oh, I actually can't go off this turn, you can just, like, end on a collector oof, and then continue next turn. <laughs> but, but, like, there's not, it's, it's very much not a toolbox deck. Yeah, 100%. Um, next up we have, uh, the low skill floor, low skill ceiling, uh, deck. And I'm pretty sure anybody listening, um, who has listened to any amount of the podcast can probably tell what we're about to say for this one. Um, our pick for this category is Godo. Um, it's very easy deck to pick up. The combo is not really difficult to grasp. You just sort of pay 11 mana and you win the game. Um, and honestly, there's... In terms of ceiling, there's not much past that. Uh, I mean, obviously, Goto players are going to get angry, but I mean, Goto has the I, reputation. I wouldn't even think so. Yeah, Goto has the reputation. People should know for if you play Goto. Yeah, like it's just it's it's very hyper linear. Um, yes, you play some number of destructive elements in a lot of the decks at this point, but uh, like even then, it's you're still just slamming the destructive element and then going to count to eleven mana rather than just counting to eleven immediately. <laughs> like it's there's not really a whole lot of uh, nuance there. Um, you just sort of do the thing. And lastly, we have a low floor, high ceiling deck. So this is a deck that you know generally will have a pretty simple to execute basic game plan, uh, but then. Uh, you know, a lot of options and decision points, and the deck we chose for this is Najila, because obviously, like, the basic combo, I mean, first of all, you have Oracle, which is possibly the easiest combo ever to execute, um, and then the Najila math is, like, really not that hard, um, and it's, you know, a two-piece combo, and one of them's your commander, uh, but uh, the reason it can have a very high skill ceiling is because it's not a super fast deck. Um, it can often find itself, and, and because it sort of applies pressure on the board without necessarily winning, it can often find itself in very drawn-out games. Um, but it lacks uh, card advantage or consistent access to... Um, it lacks consistent access to, you know, ways to get more interaction and get more resources to actually fight that that game particularly effectively, uh, which which means that um, you're like you have to be very careful with where you're spending your resources and on what because if you're careless about that, uh, you'll just run out of stuff to do incredibly quickly. 
Okay, so now with that covered, that we, we have some good deck examples to understand this, um, let's let's get into the nitty, the nitty gritty. So what makes the uh, floor um, slash ceiling high or low? And yeah, this is not like particular cards or whatever. These are kind of concepts yeah. or particular decks. Matter. These are like a lot more conceptual. And like overarching themes between decks that like share some of these traits. Now, dude, if you have a yeah, demonic I, tutor in your deck, you know it's it. That's just huge high. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> well, we'll answer that because we talk about tutors. Here. See, I mean, actually... I'll, here, I'll just start things off because this is my this first point's mine. Um, so this particular kind of idea, I think, sets a low floor for a deck typically, um, and the point is kind of a straightforward slash you know A plus B type win con, uh, and very obvious uh, consistent tutor targets and i would also so. add to that it's it's not just uh yeah like when, when you say straightforward or a plus b win cons it, it, it is almost kind of also you know we, we tend to call these decks very linear and so that that means that you know the it's also the game plan of the the deck you know not just the the win cons as well right the deck yeah it's straightforward uh a plus b win cons um but also you know like you know, we, we the example an example of low floor we'd use is Goto, which is you know there really isn't a game plan outside of your win con. Yeah, it's it's the combination of it having A plus B win cons and also those win cons being your main game plan. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Matt, do you want to go into why? Um, oh yeah, you said straightforward tutor targets. Um, yeah, so it it just tends to be that um, you know one way you could kind of almost summarize this. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about this more in high floor as well, which is there's not at any given moment, there's not too many decision paths, right? There's not too many possibilities for you to decide, or it's like, at least it's really, um, you know, fairly clear. And so, you know, when we talk about the high floor, uh, decks, um, these tend to be, uh, toolbox decks, um and and decks with like many options so like an example you know another example is like control where uh you know you, maybe your your cards aren't all different in like a toolbox deck where where you you have many tutors and different possibilities to tutor at any given uh moment but you know a good example could be like Baral, where you just have nothing but counter spells but the decisions that you're making on what to counter um, there's so many people are casting so many spells that, you know, you, you just have all of these options on what to counter and, and you need to, um, with something like, like Baral, you, you really do need to get it right. Um, you can't counter everything indiscriminately. Challenge accepted. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's also this thing. Uh -huh. While we're on Brawl, there's also um, sort of another, I, I think, and it's a, more of a direct uh, contrast to what we were just talking about in low floor, um, is that in high floor decks, again, a direct contrast to like A plus B win cons, very linear game plans, game plans that are centered around these A plus B win cons. Um, the counterpart to that in a what would a high skill floor um, deck look like in that case is a deck that potentially doesn't have good win conditions, has a difficult time winning the game, or you have to assemble more than like just the two cards or maybe your win cons aren't accessible you can't really find them with tutors um and you need to sort of like 
plot your way around playing the game until you can actually find those win cons, which is like a uh, another reason why you might say that Brawl is a high skill floor because it's like you can't just go for the win if you need to. You have to do setup and you have to get yourself into a a game position before that point that actually allows you to win the game. Yeah, it's one thing to play yeah. control in 1v1 where you're, you know, I mean, you could make an analogy maybe of juggling balls, right? Where, I mean, it's not quite that, you know, reductive to, to say in 1v1, you know, you're juggling a single ball, right? It's not that easy to play control in 1v1. <laughs> but when you talk about control in, in you know, four-player free-for-all, it, you know, juggling three balls at once is is definitely, you know, kind of more something to 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 consider you you've got to make yeah. sure that no none of your three opponents are winning and the game is is in control so that you can make it to the late game as reed was saying i would almost say that like the floor height is also kind of proportional to its goldfish ability <laughs> a little bit <laughs> honestly that's that 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 is a good metric that you can use definitely not the the sole metric but yeah that, that is actually a, a pretty yeah yeah for sure um cool and so we we have a uh you know, along the lines of, of goldfish ability, we we have a little uh, section here on tutor density. Yeah, and there's kind of multiple ways of rationalizing tutor density. So there's kind of multiple ways that it can affect the type of deck. So just to start it off, um, I think tutor density can result in your deck having a high floor because you have a lot of cards that you need to remember and a lot of cards that you need to be able to apply um based on the board state and i think that also that also pairs not just with the density of like actual tutors in your deck but um along with the density of tutor targets for for those tutors uh can um change the sort of like the high floorness a lot as well right and in like in the same way of like having to not forget about cards in your deck because if you have a lot of tutors but they can only go for one card a piece like, you just, like, I don't know, you're playing, like, a Hulk deck, and you have 15 tutors, but they can all only tutor for pattern of rebirth. Like, that, yeah, that doesn't, like, that doesn't really affect the floor, but it's as soon as you have, like, a lot of either, like, general purpose tutors or, like, like either select so like black tutors, or if you're playing, like, spe specific type tutors, but, like, all of your targets are sort of around the same power level, but do different things, like, that's what contributes to a high floor, right? Yeah, and I'd like to kind of paraphrase a little bit. Also, maybe low redundancy in targets. Mm, yeah. Because um, if there's a lot of the same, get the same. <laughs> there's there's a reason why you're playing a bunch of the same cards. <laughs> I, I'd assume, anyway. It's probably so you can draw them, but you know what? Tutoring's great, too. Exactly. Um, yeah, and there's, like, there's also, like... As we have here, um, tutor density doesn't just contribute to a high floor, though, or low floor for, like, a low tutor density, that kind of stuff. Um, it can also contribute to sort of how high the ceiling is for a deck as well. Um, a lot of this is actually in terms of... Um, uh, or Actually, I, I'll say in general, a lot of the stuff that we're actually talking about um, might be sort of implicit, but um, a, a lot of the stuff can affect mulligans really heavily, and that can also affect obviously how high the floor is how high a ceiling is for a deck um but if you have like a lot of tutors in a deck um one way that it can affect a high or your ceiling is if you have like an opening hand with 
basically your only gas is just tutors and then you have like some mana acceleration or whatever it can make it really difficult and open up a lot of your skill expression or a lot of skill expression for the deck because it like your hand's not giving you a lot of direction on what to go for and you sort of have to figure that out given like here you have three yeah. things that let you access any three cards in your deck how like what three cards do you want and like adding in like some restrictive like you have like a worldly tutor and two demonic tutors or like you have three demonic tutors or you have like a worldly tutor mystical tutor and enlightened tutor like that all that all makes it like super super difficult to figure out what you actually want to go for off each one of those yeah, and the order also, that you want to go for them. The, exactly. the sequencing, when when you have so many options, the sequencing becomes much more important, and that, and that can be a, a high contributing factor to the uh, high skill ceiling. Yeah, low-key, I feel like uh, like Imperial Seal is actually like one of the most skill-intensive cards in the format. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was literally about to say, like I both love and dread Imperial Seal, Seal Vampiric Tutor openers. Oh, with both they of them? Me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Because <laughs> they're obviously very strong openers, but there's definitely a lot of mental math. I'll say one one thing, you know, I, I guess <laughs> Vampiric Tutor also has a bit of a higher skill ceiling than um, Imperial Seal. Because, like, yeah, I guess one, one thing that you'll you'll see is is it is, to summarize something, I, or to, to bring back something I said earlier, which is more options. Um so if you if you have restrictions on the timing when you can cast a spell, like Imperial Seal versus Vampiric Tutor, um, Vampiric Tutor tends to be the card with a uh, you know if we, we want to talk just beyond decks, some cards have high skill ceilings and, and, and floors or whatever. So Vampiric Tutor is one where um, I see people will almost always if they have it turn one, I, I see people will play a land. Pass, 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 Vampiric Tutor. Which uh, can be the right play, but sometimes it's the wrong play. Um, Especially if you're doing it off of a basic swamp. Like, <laughs> if, like actually, even like the land that you play before vamping on a step actually changes it a bunch, right? Like, if you play, like, an underground sea, it's a lot different than if you go basic swamp pass. <laughs> yeah, like, the one, one thing is, like, it, how dependent is your hand on this Vampiric Tutor resolving? Because if you just uh, have it, let's say you're, you're going first in turn order. You have Vampiric Tutor. And this is the one where I see people kind of uh, get in, into the most things. It's, it's a bit less so when, you know, you're like fourth in turn order or something. But if you're going first, uh, when no one has any lands in play and everyone has their starting seven, you lead on Vampiric Tutor. Um, well, you know, if you're passing, what you're doing is you're letting your opponent see an extra card and develop their mana. So, you know, maybe someone has a Spell Pierce... Uh, if they play a land, have spell pierce up for the the vampire tutor that you try and do in the end step. It's like, well, they wouldn't have had that if you had uh, uh, just launched it off in your main phase, or you're giving them potentially options to draw into a mental misstep or something. You know, they're they're seeing an extra three cards combined between all of your opponents, so it's not always correct to play an instant uh, at instant speed. You know, I call that instant itis, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely definitely the timing restrictions. And having the options to play cards at instant speed doesn't always make it right. I mean, one thing is, you know, I think we've seen this more with, uh, I mean, it's, I mean, seen this more, I mean, just probably over the past two years, where uh, main phase ad nauseum has uh, really shot up in, you know, how often people are doing that. It used to be uh, a while ago that it was like, the only ad nauseas you're going to see are end step nauseas or, you know, nauseas on top of someone else doing something, you know, 
it's like, oh, wow, so Telegraphy is holding up the five mana for Ad Nauseam. Whereas now, you know, people are jamming their main phase Nas a lot more because, you know, sometimes that's right. So actually, on yep. sort of on top of this tutor density um, and the next point that we have here. So I'll, I'll go over this point, but I, I, I'm bookmarking another thing that will sort of tie <laughs> all this together. Um, but so a, another thing that like like that tutors contribute to this discussion is also um, and I think this this sort of does tie in what we were um, just talking about as well, though. But the idea that you don't always have to tutor for like win condition pieces or tutor directly toward your win condition with tutors um in certain so true. definitely like yeah. super bump up the um ceiling of them right because then like if you're playing a deck that has readily accessible win cons but also is playing a game plan that doesn't always want to be trying to go for a win as soon as possible that like really changes the dynamics of your tutors um i, I want to just throw in an example um, to get in my, you know, per episode Gitrog mention. Um, but one of, one of the uh, common mistake that you'll see uh, new Gitrog players make is always tutoring for Dakmore. Um, it's like, well, I'm in Tomb. I'm going to Tomb for my Dakmore. Or, you know, I can, you know, Vampire Tutor. I'm going to put vamp uh, Dakmore on top of my deck. When uh, what you tend to see is uh, higher skilled Gitrog players um, almost are very infrequently tutored for Dakmore, unless it's kind of like the win is is just right there. Um, and what you'll tend to tutor for is Life from the Loam, which is, you know, a resilient value engine that can also then be used as like a pseudo way to, to tutor for your Dakmore later. So like, yeah, very much tutoring for your, uh, for non-win conditions and, and recognizing, uh, you know, when to, to do that and when it's appropriate is... Uh, Something that definitely contributes to uh, high skill ceiling of decks. And so the the, the sort of culmination of all of this put together, <laughs> I think, as I was getting into it um, with sort of like how like the amount of tutoring that you're doing, what those tutorings are, what their tutors are going and getting, um, like how accessible tutors are for you. Um, I think the epitome of all this together and how tutors can make a high skill ceiling in a deck is having tutors in the command zone that don't just win the game. That is, like, I think, like, one of the ultimate indicators of a deck that has a high skill ceiling. Um, and also, a lot of the time, a high uh, skill floor. Um, just because you have to, like, constantly be aware of, like, as soon as you get your commander into play, all right, what am I tutoring for this time? What am I tutoring for next? How does what I need to tutor down the line going to affect what I'm tutoring for now? Um... This meeting, like, decks like... I, we have a couple here. You could probably come up with more. Um, but Yassan, Oswald, um, Five Color Sis A. Just stuff that, like, doesn't immediately end the game when it activates or untaps or whatever. But still, you have to, like, do tutoring. And you have, like, a wide swath of things that you can access. It just, like, makes them a lot more difficult to play. And, like, opens up a lot more room for skill What about Xur? That doesn't end the game till your end step. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's also a really good point, Reed, because one one thing that, that I think we've talked about on the show, um, you know, several times, which is the new player recommendation decks. For a long time, I feel like this trend has been uh, bucked somewhat recently. Of you know, Yisan used to be the, the almost like everyone's like, oh, you're a new CDH player, Yisan, you know, Yisan, 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 and 
one one thing with uh generally recommending someone a high skill floor deck as a intro to the format is a terrible idea um and something like yisan you know while it does have a somewhat linear combo line that you can memorize i mean it's not even just like i mean there's so many different branching paths that you you can go down depending on what you have to do but it really uh, it, when you're when you're playing yisan when you have no counter spells and um like it, it does require a lot of deck knowledge from what your opponents um have because i mean like uh, just a, an example of um i guess actually it's maybe not the example but anyway the, the, many of the uh the, the things that that yisan can do um or, or can find sometimes can't aren't aren't just things that can be um purely reactive like sometimes you need to preempt something that your opponent is doing you need to kind of read what they're doing in the flow of the moment and then be like okay now is actually the time to get my answer for this um particular win and then you know but if you you know miss that little window it, it could just be too late so yeah yisan yisan i think is a great example of uh what you're talking about in the command zone of something that has a um a high skill uh, floor and, and you know can have a, a decently high um, ceiling as well. But yeah, don't. I guess the moral the moral of what I'm trying to say is don't recommend these kinds of decks for new players. Uh, I, I one of my favorite recommendations for new players is Godo, um, even though it's it's you know it's got not the highest um, ceiling of decks you can recommend, but it's just a very a uh, linear deck with a, a kind of an easy to understand game plan uh, can do powerful things. But um, one thing that I really like about recommending new players Godo is that because they don't have to focus so much on their own deck um, and extracting maximum value and you know achieving maximum potential there, they can kind of focus on what their opponents are doing and learning um, about their decks by playing against them and getting a better uh, grasp on, on the CDH metagame that way. Sounds like some naive optimism to me. See, I recommend <laughs> I recommend Najila because you don't have to focus on your own deck as much, but because you have a bunch of interaction, it actually forces you to pay attention to your opponent's <laughs> decks rather than like just well, kind I, of ignoring them. I think I think Godo for me would be a good deck for someone who's very new to to. I mean, you know, maybe not if someone's a an EDH. Or like a seasoned magic veteran who kind of understands when to use interaction and whatnot. But you know, the fact that Godo can't interact that much, I think, can be a benefit for players who are um, somewhat new. But then, I, I think definitely going to Najila, um, at least you know, going going from Godo to Najila as like a level up as they get better, or if they're already at that level, starting with Najila is actually yeah a really uh, really uh, good idea. What I'm taking away from this is that you're introducing people to magic by getting them to place Godo, and that is a war crime. I mean, getting people to one thing, one thing is just like getting people to play Wait, didn't EDH. Didn't you say you introducing steal them from to... orphans? Like, what, what are we? Are you really yeah, that's introducing that's, people to magic regular, through EDH is like crime, a, not a war crime. terrible idea, but that, that's something that happens all the time anyway. It's like the way people get into magic these days. It, it's crazy. It's like, yeah, here's a format with twenty thousand possible cards you can play. Uh, and you know everyone's playing hundred card singleton, so I hope you know all of these cards, just like from Jesus. the entire <laughs> history of yeah. Magic, and all of them are counterintuitive in the way that they work. <laughs> yeah, the the I do have a point actually for Yasan having a low floor, <clears throat> specifically in the days of like I think like peak days where Yasan was recommended, <clears throat> which falls into the next point uh, bit, which is uh, resilient win cons. 
um, like you have to think about when Yasun was popular, like console wasn't as popular because the only outlet was Labman. Not at least in my mind, that's how I see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're not like like I think one of Yasun's big problems is it just can't deal with console. It, it actually like, has two tools to deal with console. Um, so but, now now they got it got endurance. Not effective. Yeah. Yeah. It can do endurance. It's it's okay. True. Endurance, and then, but ain't no, it's not cracked it's not up clean. to be. It's not clean, but it, it does it does have access to that. Um, and I mean, I guess even back in the day, it would have had something like Loaming Shaman, which I was on. But I, I mean, mean you m- also most, you have I mean the, Glade Muse, <laughs> which is like doesn't beat Labman yeah. console, but beats Torkoal console. Yeah, and, but yeah. okay. My point being also, uh, in addition to that. Yisun's Wincon comparatively was resilient, like for just some mm-hmm. odd random reason, people couldn't deal with uh, a bunch of creature combos. At least and that's how I observe things. And apparently they still can't. And they apparently they still can't. So that that certainly has Wait, that going. Isn't it? I mean, toxic damage has fallen off the map. Not not Glade Muse that deals with the. Oh console, wait, what is it? Glade Muse like, is whenever whenever a player can... casts a non-creature spell. Oh, it's, it's the, the other that one. player's yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard yeah. Story that player, yeah, it's hardwood storyteller. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. endurance is kind of hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Well, Especially I mean, I mean, yeah, one of the things. Necropotence, right, Reed? <laughs> <laughs> we we did that to someone at the two color league, and then we were like, oh, well, I guess you could just draw his deck with necropotence. Yeah, we're like, <laughs> maybe he won't notice. <laughs> And, and then he, he did didn't not. notice. Oh, really? Um, wow. Yeah, he, he, he was at like 15 or something, and we, like, we, uh, endurance for like 13, and we were like, oh, no, wait. No, no, I think, line. I think he was at like 13, and we endurance for 15, but like he had oh, like oh, four yeah, or five right, devotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were just he like, had, like, hmm. he had, like, Thorkel, and like, <laughs> there was either like Thrasius or yeah, something, yeah, and yeah. like a fish, and it was just like, uh. Uh. Yeah, so along with uh, resilient wind cons, you know, Matt, Matt was talking about kind of being independent of the board state uh, for a low floor. We also have and, for and, a high floor. Well, um, that's sorry, just to give an example, on board like, state. Oh, like sorry. a resilient wind con that's independent of board state is like I think again the quintessential one right now is honestly a lot of the time just Oracle Consult. It's just like it like it. I feel like it flattens a lot of the skill curve, and that's sort of what contributes to a low floor, right? Is that like you don't really have to care about what the rest of the table is doing a lot of the time. You just sort of jam, and it works a lot of the time. Yeah, uh, like a lot of the skill in Thorical is getting Thorical, like getting the combo set up. <laughs> yeah, and, and timing it, I guess. Yeah, but uh, the actual combo itself, not <laughs> it's pretty not particularly easy. hard to execute, and it's really difficult to stop. Comparatively, <laughs> which do I cast first, Thoracle or Consult? It's like, well, it turns out actually Honestly. you can do, you can almost do either. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah. So and and for high floor, uh, dependent on the board state, I guess I'm Morgan or Reed. We we have Hulk here uh, listed as as an example. So, I'll throw this to uh, one of you guys. Sure. So, I mean, so yeah. <laughs> like Hulk historically as a combo has, I mean, I guess it's less true now because the hate for it is not nearly so prevalent. Um, but when during Hulk's heyday, uh, you had you'd often have like multiple, you know, overlapping pieces of like semi-effective hate, 
you know, things like death rate shamans and, uh, and like, you know, maybe you're expecting a removal spell or someone has, uh, you know, curse totem was like a very popular card, uh, yeah, in, like, in, like the Grixis type decks. Like um, and then there's, yeah. Yeah. So like you have to find sort of a set of cards that lets you answer all of those, um, or bypass them or, or bypass or... them. Yeah. Um, which like was often quite tricky. Um, particularly like when you started sort of in the later days of Hulk where, you know, like cards like Karmic Guide had long been optimized out of the list. So you had like Rector that could get Necromancy that you could use once and Body Snatcher that you could use once. And then, like, that was it, and you were out of Hulk pile space. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're like, I have two plus two plus six, but I need to somehow fit a sack element into the first one, and then, like, all this other stuff. Yeah, which was always why it was so funny that, like, in many ways, drawing Nomad's Encore was, like, the worst thing yeah, in Hulk, yeah. because it was, like, the one... It was the piece that you could fit in that first pile with, like, Sack Outlet and and Rebuy. Yeah. And then it was, like... It, it, like even though it's the easiest thing to cast, it just sucks to draw it because you can't get... You can't do anything with it. <laughs> or, like, you can't do anything with the rest of the pile. It, it, it was really weird. Anyway, yeah, like, I... Yeah, Hulk... Definitely pre-Oracle Hulk a lot of the time. Um was certainly, I think, like, one of the epitomes of uh, High Floor because of its... Not necessarily its, like... It didn't really have inherent resiliency. I guess it did, but it was really more about, like... It, it had semi-resiliency to all these things, and when you have to go through and actually fight through them, it makes it so you have to really think about what you have left in your deck, what you've used so far, what's in your hand. Like, is there, like, a non-combo piece in your hand that you can use to help get you through this? Like, and, like, what did you use to get to the Hulk in the first place? Because, like, if you use the Rector to get to the Hulk in the first place, then you're now missing a Hulk doubler to, like, try to fight through hate and all this stuff. Or, like, does drawing one of the pieces help at this point? Like, does it help that I have this in my hand? Because now this opens up, like, more space in the Hulk pile and I can cast it? Anyway, I'm not gonna, like, <laughs> circle jerk about Hulk forever here, but it definitely was, like, it's, I think it's one of the poster childs for just a super high, I, I, I'm not sure that I'd call this a high floor necessarily, but it certainly contributed to a high ceiling in terms of actually being able to win the game with Hulk. Speaking yeah, I, I think oh, it's pretty easy to just run into, uh, especially onboard tricks. And that's why I yeah. kind of put it as high floor. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and then like knowing your your you know combination of of cards uh, that get around what's on board or potentially what's in people's hands. But, so it's it contributes to both. But I think for this particular point, high floor is like how I see it. Um, yeah, I was gonna say. Speaking of high ceilings, we have um, three points here that also just tend to contribute to uh, a deck having a high ceiling. So we've got lots of interaction, um, and this kind of has to do with having many decision points. Lack of value engines, um, and this kind of ties back to what I was saying with uh, Baral, where you can't afford to indiscriminately counter everything. And, uh, and um, what Morgan was saying about Najila earlier as well. Yep, and then... yeah. Um... And also, uh, oh God, what's the one? The Grixis Wizards one. Anala? Anala. Yeah. 
Anala. I think Anala, in my mind, was like the quintessential because it's just like every card counts and you don't get a lot of them. Yeah. Well, I, 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 this last one isn't a point. It is just a reiteration of the theme, which is there's many decision points and that's, that is the, the theme that kind of ties a lot of this um, together. Uh, and then, yeah, I guess the, the opposite of the, uh, you know, the lack of value engines having a high ceiling is just consistent, sustained card advantage um, results in yeah. a... Uh, in a, in a, a lower uh, ceiling, I guess lower lower floor. I mean, well. to, to lower, an extent, lower. though, it does also like it can increase. Like, it, it's a bit of a weird one because like if you have a lot of interaction and a lot of card draw, like, which is which is also why under the lots of interaction I put sort of to a point, which is that like if you have an a high enough density of interaction, obviously you can't counter everything, but um it like it starts becoming a little bit more forgiving of like maybe being a little bit too aggressive with your counter spells right when you're if you're drawing say three cards a turn and you have like 20 counter spells in your deck um the fact that you like fired one off on something that like maybe you didn't really need to counter uh sort of starts becoming a little bit more forgivable um even even though like when you're seeing a ton of counter spells your theoretical number of decision points increases uh sort of the path to success through those decision points is also broader yeah like a a, a highly a very proactive deck with um interaction that it's most mostly there to protect its combo but you know is, is also necessary for um interfering with your opponents tends to have a especially if there's not sustained card advantage tends to have a very high skill ceiling where you know that this is where you know it starts off with you know kind of the base level is um you know i should be using this to protect my own combo so you know only recognizing the, the cards that are must counters for my opponent and then beyond that, it's like, you know, uh, the next level up in terms of uh, upping your skill is, can I, you know, reading the pod, you know, can I bluff, you know, can, can I bluff that I have no interaction, have someone else interact for me so that I can maintain my, my counter spells and things like that. Um, yeah, really, really um, almost like pinching your pennies with, uh, with, with what you have in, in those kinds of decks and, and the, the margins can be, can be quite, uh, quite narrow. What I do actually think that's pretty interesting about um, some of the things that we, like, just went over and brought up is that in the way that they can contribute toward have a deck having a high skill ceiling, they can also sort of contribute toward having a low skill floor, um, especially in the lack of value engines, where um, if you don't, if you're not drawing a lot of cards every game, uh, and you don't really have the ability to draw a lot of cards every game, it certainly makes it difficult to plan long-term um, what your game plan is going to be. You have to be relatively flexible toward what you do end up drawing. You have to be like very, very disciplined in terms of rationing out your existing resources. But it can also contribute to making it like relatively easy to just pick up the deck because you only really have to consider what's in your hand at any given point in time and like the information doesn't change as much as it does when you're like seeing more and more cards a turn um so you can sort of just be like okay well this is my opening hand and i have a set game plan at the start of this game and that 
set game plan isn't likely to change that much going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So we just talked about, you know, aspects that you'll see or aspects of deck construction and, and just the, the way the deck is that contributes to its um, skill floor or ceiling. And one thing that we'd, we'd kind of um, looked at is that there's actually kind of a separate you, you you could almost look at a, a separate axis um of a of a deck here which is how the skill there's almost like a skill floor ceiling um kind of dynamic in changing a deck right so either like teching it to your to a particular meta or you know personalizing it or you know making you know trying to make improvements as you see it some decks are very forgiving in card swaps right like maybe that the combo doesn't have a lot of uh, moving pieces and um a lot of the deck is just redundant so you know look at it you go back (laughs) going back to you know we're all it's like if you if you take out a counter spell and swap it with something else uh you know it might be more optimal might be less less optimal but generally you know you there's a lot of um give when it comes to how what what you can get away with putting in brawl in terms of counter spells. Um, same cannot be said for uh, other other decks. Uh, you know, an example that that you know we were looking at was like you know maybe uh, Inala, for instance, where there's you know there's a lot more moving pieces to uh, its main combo. So you know if you aren't you know adept um, at the deck and you're uh, Maybe a bit new. You don't. You don't want to tinker with that so much because uh, you can. You can break it very easily. I mean, the classic, and I don't mean I break it as in you know in the magic sense of like, <laughs> wow, this is so busted and good. I mean, <laughs> it's a it's a broken it's no toy that doesn't functional. work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, if you don't know what you don't know about a deck, like you know when like you're ignorant to particular things, I'm not necessarily saying that's a, a bad thing. You could be kind of brand new. That's where I feel like teching and personalization is just not something you should try because, you know, to the point, like, you won't know what you're taking away. I think it's where you kind of start to know what you, what you don't know when you can, you know, essentially be like, I don't know where this, why this card's in here, but I do know that it results in strong, or sorry, it yeah, results in strong results, so you can leave it in. And, and luckily, many decks and primers have um you know guides for how to tech the deck against a particular meta or you know like i've got a considering board or like a swap board or something like that where it's oh hey if you're if you're running against you know a lot of this stuff put in this graft diggers cage that we've got in the sideboard or, or whatever you know cut this card so so a lot of that can be done for you and, and save you the the grief of, of potentially just messing up and yeah <laughs> ruining the, the deck by accident <laughs> Um, and I guess this kind of brings us to our uh, last point um, on skill floors and skill ceilings, which is the, or at least the last one we have written down. And you know, I mean, we can freestyle after this if we want, but uh, which is kind of the the curve between the ceiling and the floor, because not it's not necessarily a linear progression in terms of skill and and how much you get out of it. Um, you know, from your your win rate, 
right? If, if it takes, if it's minimal skill to get a 15% win rate and it's, you know, uh, at maximum skill, you've got like a 25% win rate. It, it, it could be that, you know, a lot of those gains come towards the later end of your skill progression, right? Like you have to progress a lot in your skill before you start to see real gains, or it could be the opposite, you know, whereas, you know, some very minimal um, improvements in skill result in, in some nice increases in, in uh, win rate. And then in order to get that, you know, last couple percent of win rate, you really have to uh, level up a lot in your skill and, and kind of like ring out that last bit of, uh, of win rate from the deck. I think kind of surprisingly, because you guys might disagree with this, but um, Cody has a really sharp upturn, really high in the skill, in the skill uh, input. Just in my opinion. So do, as, do you as mean that like, like when you get like very you, good at the deck, there's like a spike. There is a spike, yeah. So that's actually super interesting because me and Morgan were talking about almost this exact same thing on stream on Sunday. Um, when we uh, were giving away when we recorded this, uh, we never care about <laughs> giving that away. Um, <laughs> we because we played uh, a Devil Cody pod to just cap off like thirty minutes at the end of the night and sort of got into this discussion. And I don't know, like it, it's a weird one because <laughs> I like it doesn't it doesn't seem at its face like there's much to improve on once you get the basic gist of Cody down, which is just like. How do you mulligan, and then how do you just go for it? <laughs> yeah, I I would think with Cody that it would kind of follow the second example that I gave, where a lot like minor increases in skill can result in a, a sharp increase in win rate off the bat, um, and then you start seeing diminishing returns very quickly. Where you know the a more skilled the pilot is, it has less and less of a, a effect on uh, win rate once you pass that kind of like so. Yeah. Or those yeah, early my, things with my, my internal curve, my internal curve definitely works like that, except with one kind of point, uh, which is I think when it comes to interaction and particularly with um, sequencing and also judging the power of interaction against the pod, is where you see that kind of sharp increase. That oh, okay, cool. So that that's actually what I was about to ask because that's okay. I think that makes a bit more sense um, if we're going to talk about sort of like the meta game plan of like figuring out sort of like when you're gonna go for it or like if even if you're jamming anyway just like trying to think about i guess like what interaction the table is likely to have and how much they have about it uh and how much yeah. they have of it i mean i guess like making potentially smaller decisions or like decisions like okay like what mana am i leaving up at the end of this like what color of mana am i am i leaving up at the end of all of this to... i mean with cody color is like a little bit less important <laughs> well yeah but so, I, well, well actually like, one thing one thing i think is, is interesting regarding our previous discussion on um personalizing and teching the deck and, and kind of modifying it i actually think cody has you know it has a low skill floor to kind of like low barrier to entry to have like you know quite good results um but one thing that I do think it has a, I think it has a really high uh, skill, um, like a, a skill floor barrier to entry for modifying the deck. Because I think that there's actually um, a lot of consideration and things that need to be understood when trying to modify Cody that I, I think people frequently mess up and this is beyond just mm. kind of like so regular deck building I disagree. errors, like putting in. I think you're talking about I, I think. 
I think you could take out all the one mana interaction and put in um, essentially useless one mana spells and still get good results. No, you, you'd get you'd get decent results, but I, I think like you, you one thing you have to consider with with Cody is um, is your your colors of, of of like interaction and how like if you, if you're like the man, the mana like if you change your interaction too much and like you know you you, you skew like one way with um, actually actually one thing I, I I should say about this is I think it matters so. I guess this, this my my the list that I took to tier one con the untappers build isn't even I, we, we never keep and I never submitted to the the database we never finished the primer we were working on but uh, I guess actually throwing back to uh, our year in review maybe that's one thing that maybe that's just an easy way to finish a primer because we we got decently far in that that's one. cheating <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but well, one thing one thing I think with with that deck um, I think I think it might this might be more my statement might be more true for the untappers build where um, you are very you have to be very conscious of how your interaction lines up with the colors of your untappers because if if you're trying to let's say cast a uh, green untapper right like cody taps you make five mana um you cast a green untapper if you're trying to defend that untapper you're you you the extra mana that you have like can't like it, it, you can't use like a veil or autumn's uh yeah like an autumn's veil or, or veil of summer um to defend it if you're using a green untapper to untap Cody unless you have that that extra mana or whatever and and so like the mana base and what colors that provides and what mana you're gonna have extra of and how you're what mana you're spending on your untappers what mana you're spending on your um protection and or, or removal or whatever like all of that stuff can can start to add up and and those kind of considerations are, are how you uh modify the deck appropriately and that's just mm. i i find even even you know having having worked on the deck a lot it's, it's that that was something that i was still kind of like struggling with optimizing just yeah i feel like because that's weird because i feel like those kind of adding up like compound effects really kind of contribute to a, a deck's ceiling um more than it does their floor but uh yeah Oh no! no. Like, well, I, I think I, I think a lot of this has to do with with the like with the deck construction and modifying the deck because once once the deck is assembled, you're kind of dealt with what you're dealt, right? You don't really have to. There's no real decision. I mean, there is some decision of like you have two untappers in hand and you have one, you know, no, so I th- I piece think of protection what, I think that conflicts with one of the at, untappers. Don't Matt use is it, right? Getting at here is less about like in-game parts of it and more about like Cody is like you're losing some percentage points off the top when you make like some number of bad swaps on accounting mana but it's like relatively flexible in terms of like you can shove a lot of bad stuff in it and it'll still do the thing consistently oh yeah, yeah. Like, I guess taking out the infernal true. tutor is just like such a dumb move profane like, tutor, that but yeah. puts the f- so profane tutor yeah that puts the the floor just the deck building floor just so low uh, in my mind because once it's in and you know you have the ad nods or whatever like, you can kind of just pilot it like an A plus B, and like, you're good. Yeah, I guess I was more more talking about like that last bit of um, eking out the, which, that which, last which bit of high, win rate, which is a high ceiling. Yeah, is, yeah is that's what, a ceiling. Yeah. Um, In my but I think like we can agree to disagree here because it definitely is subjective. Sure. Cool. Um, any any other points from anyone on um? 
curve the curve curve between points or uh, any other points that people want to make on um, you know skill ceiling and skill floors just overall I I think we're good sure I guess the the one thing I would just like say about the curve is that I because I think it's sort of often overlooked when you just look at the two points um, is just that like there are there are some decks that have like very interesting like maybe the word plateau is like too strong um but something similar to a plateau in that uh global global mins <laughs> no no uh no like where it's like it, it flattens out for a where yeah for for some this. amount of for some amount of increase in skill uh oh, sorry you, local you won't actually there. see yeah, I guess it's kind of a global maximum. You won't actually see a commensurate uh, increase in your results. Um, I, yeah, like, and and it's, you know, a concept that I think a lot of people don't necessarily, you know, isn't necessarily um, well articulated in a lot of discussions about, like, like for example, I think Gitrog is uh, kind of a, a good example of something like that, where, like, okay, there's some amount of difficulty in, like, learning all of the combos, and then, like, then there's sort of a gap where, like, getting a little bit better doesn't get you a lot, um, but then eventually you'll, like, you'll hit a point where now you're more comfortable with the deck, you know, you're, like, comfortable doing things like spending tutors not necessarily for, for your win cons, or things like that, that, like, you can't you wouldn't necessarily do even though you're like slightly better you have a slightly better conceptual understanding than just like here's how to do the combo lines um and yeah like it's just you know something to to keep in mind that uh, not every deck's progression from floor to ceiling is like a nice smooth transition uh i was talking with matt a bit before the the show uh for a, a game i played where you know you had different options you could select to to play at the start of the game they they made these graphs that were like here's a player's average uh win rate and then here's a player's win rate like given that they chose this and and like for the various different options there were like actually every different form of curve imaginable like there were some that were uh you know just just like a linear poor players do do poorly good players do well there were some that was like okay this this is just overpowered like everyone does above average there were some where poor players did really well and good players actually didn't do like commensurately well um and you know there's just like all of those patterns are going to exist uh in in something like cedh as well as in any yeah. other game. I think if we had the data, we'd almost certainly see that as well. Yeah. Um, cool. So one thing I actually wanted to touch on uh, before we uh, close out the main topic, uh, which is kind of just some some trends of the uh, low floor, low ceiling, high floor, low low ceiling, like like these sorts of things where you tend. I don't know. Did we did we mention that people tend to hate low floor, high ceiling decks? Uh, no, I, I don't think we did. <laughs> Is that yeah. Even so true, though, 
I was trying to think of I was trying to think like, of a good time to, to put it in, but it never came up. I I personally dislike them. I, I, the thing, I, I, I tend I think to dislike I them as well. Yeah. I think I typically play the high floor oh, sorry, sorry, not, ceiling decks. Not not sorry, I'm low floor. Kind of... I don't I don't hate low floor high ceiling. I tend to hate um I guess I guess maybe this isn't quite encapsulated in just the high low floor ceiling. I I tend to hate decks that have a uh low floor um a low, a low skill floor where it's like you don't have to be particularly skilled to to reach the floor but that have a very high uh or or that floor is very high relative or is a high win rate relative to everything else i guess is, is oh, what sure. I'm that, but that's yeah. that was out of the scope of the yeah, 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 skill yeah. ceiling and skill floor okay that that you're just talking about easy to play over power yeah. decks though <laughs> a high low floor versus a low high floor well it, it, i think it just has to be it has to be that People, I think there's just a general version. It's not just a general version to, to win rate. It's just people want to feel like you earned your, your win rate, right? So I, I think what you would call that is a low skill floor, low skill ceiling, but like good deck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like a deck with a high win rate, but with low skills, ceilings, and floors. Yeah. Because it takes um, very little to get into it, and you don't really get much out of being skilled with the deck, but it still performs way too well. Yeah, like Cody, but without interaction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Godo, then, but if Goto was good. Yeah. If if Goto was if Goto was really good, it it would it would just irk the shit out It'd of me. Dude. That would be yeah. oh god. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to live in a world where Goto was really good. <laughs> Uh, thank I, think for, I think for a long time I thought that's kind of what Najila was, but uh, I think I've grown to respect it a bit more. Yeah, um, and then I, I guess one one other thing I wanted to add as well um, was that you find a lot of decks that people would call bad, and I mean I'll, I'll use Brawl because it's a deck that I work on, and I I don't feel it's a deck that I call bad. <laughs> I call bad myself. Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on on decks that that I play in, in Treasure. So. Uh, a deck like Baral, I think, has quite a high skill floor. Um, I, I think it does have a high skill ceiling, but that ceiling, you know, like we were just talking about, uh, decks, you know, where its floor is is, is pretty, or the the power level of the floor is is quite high compared to everything else. Uh, um, even if you're piloting Baral at its you know maximum, you're using all ten gajillion of your brain cells uh, working on on Baral. Uh, playing it, you're you're just not gonna get great results. Um, and then when you couple that with the fact that it has a high floor to even get like the bare minimum acceptable results, those are the kinds of decks that um, people tend to call bad. Um, and and yeah, it doesn't mean that. So when when and one thing I do want to you know definitely stress is that just because a deck is bad doesn't mean it's not viable. Doesn't mean it's not CDH. Um, the 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 biggest problem with it is that it does become not CEDH if you don't have uh, the skill required to to pilot it at that level. Um, so you know if you hand uh, like we you know, we were talking about new players with Godo, you know if you hand if you hand a new player Godo, they're gonna probably be able to pilot it at a level that is you know CEDH viable. Um, you hand a new player uh, Baral, and yeah, it's just not going to be a fun time. So yeah, that's just uh, something I wanted to, to touch on a bit. And if 
no one else has anything to say, uh, I think we can move on to uh, listener questions. So, uh, listener Bubs writes in uh, and says, uh, have you all talked about primer writing at all? Uh, it may have been in an earlier episode, um, but anyway, the topic might not have been have, have might not have enough oomph to warrant anything else. Uh, if so, I was just thinking about um, when you go into single card discussion, how collaborate how collaborators on a list can help things, primer maintenance, when to retire a primer, etc. I think we actually we actually might hold on to this one because I think writing a primer and maintaining a primer probably warrants an episode at some point. But we yeah. we definitely do a bit of um a bit of stuff here. Um, I definitely I actually. I think helped somebody uh, fairly recently um, structure their own pr uh, primer and sort of get started on what categories are um, like good to have and good to start with. Um, so I, I'm totally down to sort of share some of that if people are interested. I know you guys aren't. You guys are never interested. But if our listeners are interested, hold <laughs> on. Um, we can talk a bit. I am interested in maintaining well, an equal uh, platform for all of us. <laughs> Sorry, it was not not because you guys are never as in, there's no way you guys would actually be interested in me talking about how to structure a primer. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so really, a lot of it is just um, it's you have to think about like a new player just out of the blue i mean assume a general idea of how cdh functions but just like out of the blue um i played a couple of cdh decks before i see your deck on um some deck server or the database or whatever i'm picking it up i want to know what i need to be able to do and just look at it from that player's point of view and think about what, like what they need to know in order to like pick up the deck for the first time and just go and run with it um so typically this is like brief descriptions of core combo lines primarily um just to get them going with that um probably a bit of guidance on how certain cards work or like how certain niche interactions in the deck work that might come up frequently um it's it's nice to have those kind of things um single card discussion is nice but i don't think it's actually core to a primer i mean it, it's it's good to it have can be core if you have some if you if you need to explain some cards that are um non-obvious yeah, I, I I think really what you should, you I I feel like people overuse single card discussion a lot of the time and sort of like discuss like every card in the list when like that can that can be nice. Um, but I think a lot of the time what you want to use it for is focusing on things that might be counterintuitive or not obvious to an initial player of the deck and just um, explaining sort of their purpose and uh, what you use them for, when to tutor for them. Maybe not even then, um, but just like, sort of justify some not obvious stuff. Um, I mean, along with that. Um, I mean, you can also give guidance on general game plan and, like, mulligans and such. Um, but just, like, just basic stuff on, like, how you just get into the deck. And then you can always open it up more in, like, later parts and do, like, an advanced section or just point people to a Discord to answer more questions um, and do FAQ there or something like that. You can also just have FAQ in a primer. That's not bad. Um, but I really, you want to focus the primer on the new player picking up the deck um, and sort of what they need to know at a base level to... Um, to like really just play the deck um yeah i would also one thing i want to uh, oh sorry go ahead so i was just gonna say i would definitely caution you sort of touched on it when you said you know someone who's played a few different decks before but um I, I feel like people have a tendency to like either either they go like so in depth on certain things that like it's it becomes difficult to actually find uh to actually find like the information that you want um like if you if you throw you know 
like if you have a one hour lecture to like teach someone you know the basics of physics like going straight to like going straight to like quantum entanglement you know like a depth a depth first search (laughs) yeah like a depth first search is not actually that helpful you kind of want some breadth first um but also the other trap to avoid is like teaching people how to play cedh uh in a in a deck primer also just kind of dilutes like the potentially useful information um and it's not like really a great way to convey that and I think I think single card discussions often fall into this trap where it's like you see people explaining why their deck plays mana crypt and it's like okay well that's the reason every deck plays mana crypt and so like I guess that's certainly for single card discussion if you're putting cards down where you're like this is any deck that plays the, this card this is why they play that card like that's probably not a great use of single card discussion. Even a card that isn't a staple in every deck, like Mana Crypt, is obviously an exaggeration. But like Mana Drain, right? Like there are lots of four color decks where people have moved away from Mana Drain. Like they just want all of their interaction to be, you know, one mana or or free. Um, but like you have to, if people know what Mana Drain does, and you're, if you're like, oh, we play this because it counters creatures and it gives us mana, it's like yeah yeah okay so i i think actually a really great way to think about it um in terms of like writing primers is you're not writing a primer to justify your deck to your peers you're writing a primer to introduce it to somebody who's new to the deck Um, so one one thing i want to kind of to talk about with, with primers uh here which is there is unfortunately not there's there there is there is a difference between a primer for a new player and like a comprehensive deck guide or like you know something that is trying to get into the nitty-gritty and be like a one stops one uh stop shop resource for everything regarding that deck you know in terms of like uh, i think a gitrog the gitrog primer primer big air quotes there it really should is be called the primer <laughs> that the, uh, the, the the point what i was trying to get at is exactly is that the the term primer is um is kind of over it's, it's not used appropriately and, and kind of the problem is is that that's we, primer is used to mean many different things when yeah really a, what a primer should be is exactly what reed said which is for new players um but we you know when you go to moxfield right it's a you know this deck has a primer or click on primer it's like well there's no place for a you know here's the primer and then here's the comprehensive in-depth deck guide or you know all the the resources you want so really things kind of get lumped into everything gets lumped into being called a primer so yeah decks i mean even yeah you go on the the deck list database you know listed as a primer and it just it's not possible to kind of uh differentiate the the level of depth to which people are going but yeah when, when you're writing a primer for a new player um very much so i think everything morgan and reed said is just you know absolutely crucial um brevity you know not 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 too much depth um don't don't uh you know exp- over explain how to play cdh or, or get into too much of, of the philosophy or something but like um i guess regarding single card discussion you know sometimes you know it might be worth the point out no- notable exclusions is a category that you'll often see which i think is, is actually kind of valuable because it will answer questions that people are like you know oh I see that this, you know, I guess I'll use a, I do my Thata deck as an example. Um, 
why this deck isn't running mana crypt you know why i should i should just slam that in easy and it's like well you know if you put in a, a notable exclusions section you say hey i'm not running mana crypt because in your main combo line you will die to your mana crypt damage while you're looping your turn spells or something like that yeah, something I simple like that is is uh often ex explanation I, enough i think that's the one category that i'd actually um say is probably a reasonably good idea to put in a primer that doesn't explicitly focus on new players is just like ex like specifically exclusions because those will like putting that in your primer will guarantee you that you won't have to answer as many questions as you would otherwise like that's hilarious other, you think people read that the other part of a primer is to reduce the amount of questions that you get on your deck list. <laughs> that that but that's, that that's, honestly that that is the end goal of a primer, yeah. really. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's not like the hey, it, it's not really what you should be writing a primer for. But it's certainly a functionality of a primer is to, to stop getting people commenting on your thing with questions that you've answered a bajillion times already. Anyway. Well, honestly, I think it's a good it's a good thing to use because if if your primer is uh, succinct and well written, um, you're not going to get questions because people will have read it and they'll understand most of the important things they need to understand. But if your primer is the fucking you know million page thing, the Gitrog monster, I'm not going to call it the the Gitrog monster. Um, it's the guide Gitrog monster or whatever monster. thing novel. Yeah, <laughs> uh, is then it's it's kind of a um, too long did not read situation where people will just be like this thing is too daunting i'm not going to read it um so you know i'm just gonna you know, i'm still gonna be asking questions so if people are asking questions and you, you it's it they're asking questions about things that you've covered um that's maybe an indication that things aren't uh information isn't accessible in a way that um is convenient matt yeah i think you were you were gonna chime in Oh, I was just going to say, and as Reed mentioned, we could probably do a whole episode on Pokemon primers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, some some decks, I think, like Gitrog, it's like, it'd, it'd almost be um, better served by having, like, a, a wiki or, or, or some kind of format like that. And Yeah, FAQ. We, we definitely tried to do some sort of like that when we, we were formatting the primer, but it's it's just, it's it's very... It, not not only is it daunting to read, it's a daunting task to kind of edit and, and maintain something of that scale. Um, yeah. You, you almost want to have like a separate primer and, and guide and yeah, but anyway. Um, anything else on this or uh, we get to uh, close it out? I think we're good. Cool. I think we're good to close out. Well, that wraps it up for this episode. Uh, if you guys like to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us on Twitter at Into the North Pod, via our email, into the North Podcast at gmail.com, or on our Discord server, the invite link for which can be found in the description for this episode. You know, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, you know, join our Discord so that you can, you know, know when we're doing our uh, any like Twitch uh, Twitch streams or anything like that. Uh, and also, if you want to participate in a bunch of esoteric cdh philosophy and arcane denial discussion it's, it's uh it's great for that <laughs> um extra special thanks to all of our patrons who help cover the expenses for our show and allow us to work towards improving the quality of the podcast if you too would like to become a patron we are at patreon.com slash into north podcast another way you can support us is via our tcg player affiliate link 
So anytime you want to purchase something from TCG Player, if you use our affiliate link, which is in the podcast slash YouTube description, a portion of your purchase goes towards supporting the podcast, and it's much appreciated. Thank you as always to the band Vox Cadre for our lovely podcast music, to Nate Slover for our equally lovely podcast logo, and to our video editor, Manta Ray Hat. Next episode will be out in two weeks. Until then, see ya.